Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. So I can remember about a month ago when Education Week started. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it has been a full-on week at the State House for, for both of us. A lot to get to on higher education and, oh yeah, by the way, there were science standards. But... Let's start with K-12. Right. Let's start with the budget presentation that we heard on Thursday. Not a lot of surprises in the presentation itself, but some interesting dialogue about the particulars and, and about questions that lawmakers have going forward about education funding. So let's uh, start there. Yeah, one of the biggest budget hearings of the year, uh, the reason it's so closely watched and scrutinized, we're obviously talking about the K-12 public schools budget. Uh, but as our readers and listeners know, it's the largest expense every year uh, for the state of Idaho. And so that's why we pay so much attention to it. But on Thursday, the big day, Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra, uh, presented her request. That was her formal request to increase school funding by 5.3% or $101 million next year. But it's like you said, uh, her and her staff had actually released those numbers and that proposal to the public back in September. Right. The doesn't are... really look like it changed. So it wasn't a surprise. It was more about how the superintendent did, and I think she did well, uh, and then the questions that legislators had. And so, like we were talking about just before we turned on the mic, that kind of shows you what's on budget writers' minds as we transition uh, into this budget hearing and then budget setting process soon enough. What's on their mind and what they're going to have to do as budget writers uh, to reconcile uh, Superintendent Ibarra's budget requests against Governor Little's budget requests. And there aren't huge differences between the two, but there are differences. And there are differences um, on the order of uh, several million dollars here and there. So the budget committee does have some things that they need to figure out and to decide. Their priorities are pretty well aligned, uh, but Superintendent Ibarra is actually asking for a bigger increase in funding, both overall and for raises for veteran teachers. Uh, Governor Little asking for a little bit smaller uh, increase. I think his overall increase would be 4.1 million, 4.1 percent. Pardon me, 4.1 percent versus 5.3. Right. And then when we look at um, veteran teacher salaries, that's the biggest request driving both budgets. Superintendent Ibarra asked for $40 million. The governor asked for 30 But I think the context here, and this will get into some of the questions that lawmakers asked, we've known and that we've reported that this budget year is going to be interesting because of tight competition for resources. We already know about the budget reset, uh, the spending reduction of 1% for the current fiscal year, 2% ahead for the upcoming year. K-12 public schools are immune from that. But it's setting up this environment where there's going to be competition for resources. And I don't think either one of these budget proposals, I, I, I think they'll both be changed. When JFAC ultimately sets the state budget, I think they'll, they'll both look a little bit uh, different. But let's get into some of the things that lawmakers asked about. A couple of things that caught your attention, Kevin. Well, one of the things that caught my attention, and it goes to the, the biggest line item, the biggest uh, proposed increase in Ibarra's budget and Little's budget, is that pay raise for veteran teachers. Right. We had some discussion that surfaced in committee on Thursday morning that sort of revealed some conversations that have been going on behind the scenes for weeks about, okay, if you raise salaries for veteran teachers, how do we link those pay raises to an yep. accountability metric? How, do, how does the state 
draw a connection between giving a pay raise to veteran teachers against student performance. So you had that discussion start to bubble to the surface a little bit in, in the question and answer segment. I flagged down Greg Wilson, uh, Governor Little's uh, education advisor during a break and asked him, well, what does that look like? And that's still very much up in the air. Right. Um, it does not necessarily look like the teacher evaluations that you've been writing about for years that have been brought with, with a lot of problems over the p- course of several years. They're talking about something new that appears to be very much something in development still. that's still in the development phase, and it may or may not look a little bit like the process for the master educator premium. That's part of the conversation. Sure. I mean, yeah, Greg Wilson was very uh, cautious about uh, getting out too far ahead of what's being discussed and what this might look like. Uh, when we did the uh, the media uh, gaggle with uh, Superintendent Ibarra after a presentation, uh, and I asked about the accountability aspect of this, uh, Ibarra said that she's involved in those discussions as well. Um, remains to be seen what it looks like, and said as a former teacher, you know, we're not going to shy away from accountability and yeah. realize that lawmakers are going to want to see some kind of a return on investment. Uh, in terms of you know what you get if you raise salaries, so that was one discussion point. And you you flagged down a couple of legislators during a break as well, asking them about another line item in this budget: advanced opportunities, which could see a, yet another a funding increase. Yeah, advanced opportunities, and that's sort of the catch-all term uh, that encompasses a number of programs. One that's really easy to think about is the dual credit program right, that allows students while they're still in high school. Uh, to earn college credits. And Senator Jeff Agenbrod, Republican from Nampa, uh, as well as uh, Senator Woodward, Republican from Sagal, up in North Idaho, um, both asked about the Advanced Opportunities Program, and they were a little concerned about the budget budget implications Mm -hmm. and the overall way this program is set up. Basically, in statute, in Idaho law, it makes available $4,125 for any secondary student to use on these advanced opportunities programs throughout their academic career. Senator Agenbrod noted that only only a fraction of Idaho students are tapping in mm-hmm. to this, uh, but it's growing. And, and it's growing to the point that Superintendent Ibarra is asking for a $2 million funding increase. And so is little. For advanced opportunities this year. But Senator Agenbrod said... He's concerned about what will happen to the budget and to the availability of these programs as more students come online, as more students uh, buy into the programs and participate. All of a sudden, if more students or if everybody starts taking advantage of the 41 to uh, 4125, he worried about what that would do. And he said that, you know, I don't want the success of a brilliant program to be its downfall. So I want to be strategic about this. And... Um, him and Senator Woodward flagged me down in the hallway, talked about that for a moment. Superintendent Ibarra did respond during the hearing. She said her team has looked at that. They're concerned about some of the mid-year transfers, taking money out of state rainy day accounts to pay for budget expenses. But she said, and this is a quote, I think the savings to the student is what we really need to be focusing on here. That's what Ibarra said during the hearing. And so obviously... Uh, she's saying she recognizes their concerns, but she's saying, and this is personal for Superintendent Ibarra, she spoke about how her son, uh, a recent high school graduate, was able to take advantage of some of these advanced opportunities, dual course, dual credit programs, 
get a jump start on his college education. He's now a student at University of Idaho. But an interesting discussion about a popular program, which appears to be growing in popularity, mm-hmm. and there's a bigger budget footprint that goes along with that. And and I think they're just trying to say, what's the right way to handle this here? Right. It's two. There's al- and there's also an impact on the colleges and universities, which I thought was interesting. Right. So it's a two-edged sword for the State Department of Education. Uh, they're touting this as a success story. They're pointing out that uh, I believe they said that only two states in the union uh, have more students taking more dual credit classes than Idaho. So. You know, the State Department of Education wants to position this as a success story, that Idaho is uh, on the cutting edge of something on the national plane. But those numbers, like you talked about, I, w- I was in Senate Education on Thursday afternoon. There was a presentation on advanced opportunities, and I've, I've got it. I've got the spreadsheet somewhere on my computer. But um, only a couple of hundred students across the state are tapping into that $4,125 uh, dollar, uh, allowance. And maxing out at it. Sure, sure. So there is A higher is percentage so, are taking some. Right. And you've got so many students who are taking maybe a couple thousand dollars right. worth of classes. So, yeah, if you think about it that way, the, the growth trajectory in this program is, it's almost incalculable how much it could eventually wind up costing. And, and really, I think legislators have no control over how much it's going to cost. The State Department of Education has no control over how much it costs. It really comes down to what every student across the state decides to do with this program and to what extent do they try to uh, take advantage of it. So, you know, it, it is a blank check when you get right down to it. There, there's no control over you know, how big the program gets. And you mentioned the impact on higher education. We heard a little bit about that again this week, that you know, colleges and universities offer these dual credit classes. Yep. They don't get fully reimbursed. They kind of subsidize the, the cost. For the cost. So they are subsidizing it. So it is a cost shift, uh, you know, that's being borne by a higher education system that's dealing with plenty of other budget challenges. And, it, and it's interesting. None of this obviously happens in a vacuum, uh, but this touches on a lot of educational issues and a lot of educational goals. When the Advanced Opportunity Program dual credit was rolled out, they talked about this ultimate goal of making it really easy. Maybe easy is the wrong word, but having a clear pathway for students to earn 60 college credits before they graduate high school, Mm -hmm. which is basically the equivalent of an associate's degree or your first two years of college instruction. And they're saying that that could make a real difference on affordability and access to higher education. It could impact our go-on rate, it could impact our population goal, the 60% goal, something you wrote about again this week. But it, it impacts so many different things. But the idea being that there is a pathway for students to get 60 college credits, basically an associate's degree, basically their first two years of gen eds. And then, of course, there's the issue of whether everything will translate in credit. But the idea being that they could basically have two years of college more or less out of the way by the time they graduate mm-hmm. high school kind of a powerful program. That was the goal. Students are certainly taking advantage of it, some more so than others. But uh, it, in terms of the cost and the budget impact, they are just working on estimates and projections. We really don't know because it depends on how many students take how many courses to know what it'll cost at the end of the year. Right. And, and again, you're shooting in the dark here to the point of when uh, the state had to take money out of the uh, 
budget reserve for for K twelve, and that really concerned a lot of lawmakers. That came up. We're in hearing JFAC. a lot of discussion about that. It in, was thirty two million dollars, I think, to cover. Basically, unanticipated cost, advanced opportunities was some of that, transportation cost, uh, field trip costs were a part of that, and student growth overall was a a big driver in that. But uh, dipping in in the most recent budget year, I think to the tune of $32 million, taking that out of the rainy day account, that was close to one-third of what the overall balance was at the time in that rainy day account. And I want to say about a $4.4 million chunk of that was for advanced opportunities. Yeah. So, uh, so I, the, the I can't cost just yeah. keeps rising and the questions about where it ends uh, are, are just impossible to answer. And, and I think that large of withdrawal from the savings account really, a lot of legislators, I think of Representative Wendy Horman in particular, said that's un- unsustainable. We don't want to have surprises like that. And so whether it's anticipating growth better or you know, locking down some of these things. They said we can't have these kind of surprises. Yeah. And I'm paraphrasing here, but that's the that's the general no, point. I, and I think that's a fair way to, to paraphrase it. So that kind of lends to making the transition uh, from the K-12 discussions in, in the Budget Committee to higher education yeah. because most of the week is spent uh, with the various uh, college and university presidents from the, the four-year schools, from the two-year schools, uh, making their budget presentations, and you know that's something I was following all week, and there was some some sobering uh, you know, comments made by the university presidents uh, about the budget situation yeah. that they're facing. I from at the beginning of the week from President uh, Scott Green at University of Idaho to the end of the week just today, President Marlene Trump from Boise State University talked about the impact of what's basically, as you've reported, basically a flat higher education budget proposal, coupled with a tuition freeze, coupled with some existing financial concerns already in place at the University of Idaho. But you really took the lead on following the higher ed budget requests and budget hearings this week. But that was a lot more interesting in terms of what they're facing and what it may mean. And and so I guess what jumped out at you and, and, and what did you pay attention to? Yeah, let's let's hit some of the talking yeah. points. Let's hit some of the highlights. And if you want more detail about the individual schools and the individual challenges, go to our website, go to idoednews.org and scroll around and find uh, the stories from each day. So it starts Monday with uh, Scott Green, the president of University of Idaho. Who, and we knew the University of Idaho is facing yeah. a, a pretty dire a uh, financial situation. And he did not try to hide that at all. He, he couldn't. I mean, it's been out there that, uh, you know, they've been running on an operating deficit of about $20 million a year for the past two years, uh, filling that in with budget reserves. And, and Green has said, we're not going to continue to do that. We are going to get this budget in line. We're going to balance this budget, he says, by 2022. And if you're going to do that, he said, we're going to have to get, you know, it's going to affect people. It's going to affect programs. It's yeah. going to affect staffing. He was very blunt about that. We kind of knew that it was going to be a you know a reality check from the University of Idaho. But going to it's what I heard, tough because it, it, they have a 0.4 percent budget increase for overall colleges and universities on the horizon. The tuition increase, and so the freeze, the, 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 tu- freeze. the, the, tu- the tuition freeze for resident and state tuition. But I mean that really makes it difficult in terms of. Those are the two big sources of revenue coming in, your state support and your tuition and fees dollars, and, and so it's really tough. And then the other reason that this budget is tough for higher education at this point is that when Governor Little imposed 
budget cuts across almost all of state government, K-12 is exempted. He's not forcing uh, the public schools to cut budgets this year and next year, but he's expecting colleges and universities and the community colleges to cut 1% from their budget this year. That's happened. And he's expecting a 2% budget cut next year. So because it's fresher in my mind from this morning, yeah. uh, from Friday morning, when Marlene Trump talked about the situation at Boise State, she was really trying to you know, thread a needle here uh, in terms of the presentation. She was talking about innovation at Boise State and an innovative approach to trying to cut budgets. She talked, uh, cited an example of Boise State cut some expenses in their library. They you know, yeah. cut some subscriptions to journals to go to more of a, a pay-per-view per almost approach to those, uh, to those journals that aren't used very much by, by students or faculty. And using the savings to uh, hire a staffer to increase the open source offerings that they can have at the library. So she was trying to make the point that budget cuts are tough. They do force you to be creative and innovative, and, that's, and that can be a good thing. But she was also pretty blunt about if you cut our budget again, it's going to potentially affect the very core course offerings that we provide to students in order to make good on a promise Boise State has made for years. This goes back to the Bob Custer's days. If you commit to being here full time, we commit to getting you the opportunity to get your degree in four years, that you will be able to get the courses that you need to graduate in four years so you're not, you know, sticking around paying more tuition for more semesters. Uh, Trump said, you know, we may not be able to uh, continue to honor that commitment if we have to cut budgets again. I found that to be uh, a pretty uh, pretty sobering message from from Boise State's new president in what was an otherwise you know, fairly upbeat, uh, fairly forward-looking, fairly optimistic uh, picture for Boise State. But, you know, all of these universities are dealing with these budget realities in some very different ways. And, um, you know, we talk about the tuition freeze. And what strikes me is it comes at a really tough time for Idaho, for University of Idaho when they are facing this, you know, pretty dire shortfall. It comes at a really interesting time for Boise State because Boise State continues to smash these enrollment they records. They just set a fall enrollment they set record. Another record. They're up three percent. They are, you know, their growth is you know, seems to show no signs of slowing. You can't really make a supply and demand argument for freezing tuition at Boise State when you've got folks, you know, you know, showing up in droves. So it's a it presents different challenges to different institutions. You know, a, an institution like Boise State that's dealing with the impacts of growth, University of Idaho dealing with a, a really tight uh, budget uh, dilemma. Yeah, you know, that was kind of you know that was one of the themes. But really for me, and I wrote about this on Thursday. We heard it over and over again, and it's it, it was really striking how much these four presidents are, are trying to work together, how much they're trying to present a united front. Uh, you know, Kevin Satterley, the president of Idaho State University, said it very bluntly that the days of us operating in self-interest and parochialism as our driving force, those days are gone. We are going to work together. We're going to be collaborative. We're going to be cooperative. I think the tuition freeze is a good example. They, they all four uh, presidents agreed to the freeze. And like I say, that affects them all in different ways. You know, 
this this message of trying to work together, uh, like I said, it's something I wrote about for my piece on Thursday, and they were getting rave reviews from legislators who were you know just excited to hear the four presidents speak together, present together. You know, they started Monday morning with a joint presentation at JFAC, which uh, I don't recall ever seeing the four presidents do at the start of the budget hearings. Um, yeah, and you know. My sense, watching this over and over during the week, uh, my sense also having some time with them on Tuesday when we uh, taped a program at Idaho Public Television, which you can catch uh, online. My sense is that there's a genuine working relationship here, that there's a genuine rapport, that this isn't just show, that these four presidents really, uh, they get along. I mean, they seem to be really cordial. It doesn't feel like it's just sort of, you know... Well, didn't President Green on. take out an ad congratulating uh, President Trump uh, here locally on her yeah, installment yeah, I mean, as president? I, I mean, I, it, I don't think it's just lip service. And I think it absolutely is making an impact on legislators. And, and some of the legislators who were very concerned over the summer about some of the diversity programs and things like that have really responded positively to this collaboration and certainly the tuition freeze. Right. The tuition freeze is very politically popular, I think, you know, in addition to what it does for students and parents in terms of giving them some predictability for the next year, it was a very smart political move. It took any kind of backlash on a lot of things. It, it took it off the table. It's, it's pretty hard. It's changed to, the conversation. It, it really has. And I think it's and I think it has given some some credence to what these presidents are talking about when they talk about trying to work together to find common solutions. If you can find a common solution on something as sensitive as tuition, if you can find a common solution on something that has a multi-million dollar impact on these institutions, that bodes well for these presidents working together on something like a cybersecurity yeah, program. Which, an expansion of programming. Which, yeah. which Little has proposed this $1 million line item for cybersecurity, but he wants it to be a joint major shared by Boise State. University of Idaho and Idaho State. So, you know, you know, my sense and, and a little bit is just sort of intuition and it's just sort of reading the, the body language and reading the the overall tone, watching the four presidents, you know, in the hearing rooms, watching them on the set when we had them on on Tuesday, but watching them behind the scenes too. I, I think there's a, this feels legit. This feels like uh, these four presidents are, are really trying to make this work as, as a joint undertaking. And when you think about the challenges that they're facing, uh, you know, any energy that they, you know, don't expend arguing amongst themselves <laughs> is energy that they can expend uh, dealing with some really serious uh, fiscal challenges, political challenges, existential challenges or trying to get more students to, to enroll. And it, it may seem like we talk about this a lot, but it does appear that this level of collaboration and uh, the, tu the, the tuition freeze at the four-year level, it looks like it's unprecedented in state history, or at least as far as written records of such things go back. And so, But I don't just think that it, it's lip service. I think they're actually doing something tangible here, and it's going to be difficult, and the presidents have acknowledged that. But, but why are we talking about it? It, it, it may be some something in terms of unprecedented collaboration uh, between the universities, the likes of which we have not seen in Idaho before. Right. It, it's a, they keep calling it a new day. You know, th that was a term that we heard over and over during the week. Uh, another, you know, catchphrase that we heard in, in the budget committee, I think it was uh, coined by the, the outgoing president at College of Southern Idaho. He referred to 
the four university presidents, uh, college and university presidents, and the four community college presidents. The gang, is a, of, eight. The gang of eight. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's not meant to be a, a negative. That you know what, what they're trying to say is that they're all eight trying to work together yeah. uh, on shared issues. And yeah, legislators really, really responded to that message this week. There was no, no doubt about that. And I mean, president uh, credit to a lot of those new presidents. As you know, as a lot of our listeners and readers know, we had a lot of openings and turnover at the higher education level mm -hmm. over the last two years. And you get some of these new presidents in, uh, Cynthia Pemberton at Lewis Clark State College, Kevin Satterley at Idaho State, Scott Green at University of Idaho, Marlene Trump at Boise State University, all within about a year time frame. They are working together and they're hitting the ground running and getting things mm -hmm. done. All right. And, you know, let's, you know, let's keep it in some context here. I mean, it's not like these four presidents have invented the idea of no. collaborative work. I mean, when when Kevin Satterley was talking to, I think it was Senate Education uh, this week, he said, you know, there are folks within his institution that are resisting the idea of collaboration, but there are folks within that institution who have been working with their with with their brethren at the, the other schools for a long time. Well, and the, Kevin came over from, from Boise State. Right. Uh, so a, he has those contexts in that network. I mean, I think there's there have been collaborative efforts. I mean, Case, the, the Energy yeah, sure. Collaborative that we both know about from Idaho Falls. Partnering with the National Lab, yeah. Right. So I, it, this is not a new concept necessarily, but I think it maybe is a new commitment to making that concept work. So we have full coverage from all of the budget presentations. I took a step back and did an analysis piece about the, the presidents and their, their joint message, their, you know, this, this whole concept of the new day. Uh, I took a closer look at that, so you can find all of that at idahoednews.org. And that would all make for a busy education week. If we didn't already have enough going on, we had, you know, Back to the Future, another right. hearing on science standards. It's like it's like 2018 all over again. Well, I, I mean, I, I can even show you how it's worse than that. Um, this is the fourth year in the last five that the legislature has had divisive hearings on science standards. And you had a front row seat on it Wednesday. On Wednesday. And, and this hearing was sort of similar if you followed the Common Core hearings in English and Math the week before. This hearing was sort of similar in how it played out and how it felt. Uh, the general trend was that testimony, 25 people spoke. And testimony ran 15 to 10 in favor of retaining the science standards. Uh, generally speaking, and this fits with the trend, but generally speaking, the professional educators um, supported the standards, uh, said they're important, said that they build upon one another, they give, they set expectations, they give guidance for teachers, particularly the elementary level teachers who mm -hmm. are wading into science, and that may not be their first and foremost area of expertise. They said these standards give them um, some guidance. And then there were some parents and legislators and Freedom Foundation officials and retired school board member. And I think we did hear from a uh, substitute teacher and another teacher who had concerns uh, with the science standards. And, and they talked about they talked about myriad concerns, and some of it was predictable. They, they talked about the scientific method and experimentation, uh, allowing students to use data to draw their own conclusions. And they got into things that we would expect and that we've heard over the last five years, climate change, fossil fuel, human impact on the environment, but at other times, this hearing this week on science, I thought more than any other veered off course. Um, George Washington wasn't off limits. Yeah, that was really several of the speakers were really concerned. And this, I don't know how it had anything to do with science, concerned with the idea that the, the 
children may be taught that the founding fathers had owned slaves, that Christopher Columbus uh, was a terrible racist. And um, I, I don't know how that fit in with science, but you it's really... political science, It's maybe. political it's science. government and it's history, but, you know, science and having a hard time drawing the connection. Yeah, but on the other hand, we had the professional educators uh, who were going through the standards and talking about how they use them and how they implement them uh, within... Uh, within the school system, within their classroom. Fairly similar theme, I suspect, to what we heard yeah. last week on Common Core. We had educators saying, look, we're, we're getting used to these standards. We're, we're, we're working with them. We're accustomed to them. Let's not have the upheaval that comes with new standards. And, and yeah, that came up. That, was, that was absolutely what came up, that this idea that if you're going to repeal the standards, no one is really talking seriously about what you would put in their stead, what you would replace them with. And so this idea that you would create chaos and trepidation uh, by repealing them, have nothing to replace them with, create a lot of uncertainty in classrooms. Uh, several educators said, why are you continuing to do this? You do this almost every year. The science standards and all standards have this cyclical review process every five to seven years. They're going to come back, uh, but why threaten to throw them all out or, or, or pick them apart? And one thing I picked up on, and, and I'm not trying to say that I'm for the science standards or for the common core standards or opposed to anything else, but one thing I picked up on is a lot of professional educators said that it appears that some of the concerns from the opponents amounted to them taking what are serious concerns about education and about decisions being made in the classroom, but not necessarily related to the standards and blaming them on the standards. And so mm -hmm. some examples we saw parents and, and community members, maybe they have a problem with a homework assignment that a child has been given or a novel that they've been asked to read or the way a quiz has been graded or an individual lesson plan. And they're saying, these aren't the standards. The standards those are local decisions. Those, those are, are local decisions. decisions. school decisions, district decisions. And I'm not trying to say books. that those aren't concerns, but some of these professional educators are saying, maybe that's the kind of thing you talk about at a parent-teacher conference or back-to-school night or, or maybe call the, call the principal or attend your local school board member. But it seemed like people had concerns that were valid concerns, that things that they didn't understand, but they were either told or they were trying to connect them to the standards. And when you look at the standards, I mean, that's not really what the concerns were about. And, and so I think I, that there was a lot of that going on. And it definitely some people, even the opponents, did have legitimate concerns with the standards. They talked about if the standards were enacted on the promise of increasing student achievement and bettering student outcomes, we may not necessarily be seeing that. Uh, they're talk they, but in, in, in Dorothy Moon, a retired science teacher who's a legislator, member of the House Education Committee, and kind of leading the charge, leading the charge, standards. She did talk specifically on, on the science standards. She got into it. She said, "Why are we talking about water behind a, a dam rather than hydroelectricity? Why are we talking about some of the negative impacts of biomass?" And, and she basically said she wanted, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she wanted more balance in the way that the standards treated fossil fuels and human impact on the environment. She wanted more positive stuff mixed in about what these technologies or what these fuels have been used to accomplish in terms of the development of our country or some of the positive things that humans have done over the years uh, to try to address the impact of climate change. That you know, and, I, and so I don't know. Uh, it, it's obviously, and like she said, it, it became political. The debate became political. There was no two ways about that. Um, but it, it, it was similar. It, it's... And, 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 and so, so where we go from here, that also seems 
vaguely familiar too because right. I think we're back to something we've seen before, a movie we've seen before. Here we go again, but yeah, and so the important thing to point out is that the House Education Committee did not take any action on no any votes. of the standards. No, no votes. The yeah. uh, Chairman Clow and Vice Chair Kirby suggested maybe action could be coming next week, but maybe not. Um, but basically, we're going to have several options, and the long and short of it is is that when legislators go to make their decision, they have three basic choices. They can repeal all of the standards, they can repeal some of the standards, or they can leave them all in place as is. But there's a giant catch. Both chambers would need to agree in order to repeal the standards and remove them from the books. Right. It would not... I think it's very possible that the House Education Committee uh, will try to repeal all or a significant amount of some of these standards. doesn't matter if it's Common Core, English, Math, or science and science or, or is not common core. I, mean, right. uh, yeah. I think the House Ed Committee will make a significant effort to try to repeal the standards, but what matters is what the Senate Education Committee does because if the Senate Education Committee does not go along with that, the standards will remain in place. And that's how we got the standards, the science standards in place in 2018, anyways. But you have kind of an interesting interview that'll air this weekend. We're both going to be on Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television. You can catch right. it at 8 local time Friday on your television. Otherwise, it'll be online at idahoptv.org this weekend blog. and on your blog. But you talked with Senator Mortimer about how his committee may approach the academic standards. That's going to be on the show, and then I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as well. Right, and you know, I, I did sit down with Senator Mortimer, and the first thing I wanted to ask him about was, well, what's going to happen with the standards when they reach the Senate? Because as many hours as the House has spent talking about these standards, the Senate hasn't even touched the academic standards. It doesn't appear super eager to wade into this. And that's exactly my takeaway. And you'll be able to hear uh, Senator Mortimer in his own words uh, on my blog and, and on Idaho Reports tonight. I There's not a lot of appetite there uh, to take this up again, especially with the science standards, two years removed from approving them in, in Senate education. So... In the end, yeah, you know, Mortimer did not speak for his committee. He did right. not flat out say this isn't going to happen in the Senate. We're not going to repeal any of this. Uh, he does not want to get out ahead of his committee. He doesn't want want to get out ahead of the vice chair of the committee, Stephen Thane, who who administers over the rulemaking process in, in Senate committee, much like uh, Vice Chairman Ryan Kirby does on the House side. Correct. So, yeah, Mortimer is trying to you know honor the protocol and respect the protocol. And, you know, he did not flat out say what's going to happen. But, you know, reading between the lines, reading his tone, and knowing the recent history on this, I don't sense that the, that he really wants a, a big protracted process and another round of marathon hearings on science standards. Common Core maybe is a little bit different. I don't know what they do with Common Core. It kind of depends still on what the House uh, winds up doing. Right. You know, we're presuming that the House is going to take, uh, a, you know, take an editing pen to all these standards, which I think is a safe assumption. I yeah. think that's safe to, you know, use as an operating uh, assumption, but we don't know what exactly that's going to look like and how exactly that's going to play with the Senate. But, you know, I, I think in his last year in the, in the Senate, uh, Dean Mortimer would rather be working on moving the funding formula at least somewhere down the road. Right. Maybe not, maybe not get to completion, but I think he wants to work on stuff like the funding formula and, you know, not exactly chomping at the bit to take another run at the science standards. So we'll see. And, and like I say, you can hear him 
uh, and see uh, see what he's got to say about that. And we'll have that on my blog, and we'll have it at Idaho Reports. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. We're still early in the session, uh, but the legislature hasn't really got into legislating yet because they're mired, they're bogged down in this rules debate. And the rules debate's taking the form of standards in the House Education Committee. But everybody's kind of waiting to see how this plays out before they move into legislation. I have been told that House Ed is going to start introducing new bills next week, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. That'll be a first, because they really have Um, not run any bills. They've been in rules all all session. So that funding for the discussion is going on behind the scenes, and I know for a fact that it's happening, and I know for a fact some people are working very hard on it. Um, But, yeah, I... I, And just the beginning of a cursory discussion on the funding formula in Senate education this week. A presentation about some of the mechanics of how you would shift from counting uh, counting average daily attendance to counting enrollment and, and how you make that calculation. So, yeah, there's there's discussions going on. There's work being done. But it is, you know, so much in the background because the rules have kind of right. taken a lot of the oxygen out of the room at this point. Absolutely. And we think that will go for another week, maybe longer. And how said they're moving slowly. Um but I do think it's a safe assumption that they will really try to get the uh, red pen out and take that to some of to some of the standards, maybe to all of the standards. We'll see. So a lot happened this week. This is a full education week, and you can get kind of the full coverage of the science standards hearings, the uh, K-12 budget hearings, the higher education hearings. We have that all at idoidnews.org. A lot more to read on our website, and, you know, much as... I like to encourage you to read my stories or Clark's stories, something you have to read this yeah, week. Yeah. Uh, a Voices piece from the uh, Idaho Teacher of the Year, Stacey Lawler, uh, talking about social-emotional issues in the classroom from a very personal perspective. And I can attest to this, and, and, and you can as well. Uh, she delivered this message and, and read her Voices piece uh, before the Senate Education Committee on Thursday afternoon. And there are a lot of presentations in that committee. There are a lot of presentations in legislative committees. And the audience tends to, you know, listen, but maybe not listen as as attentively. And I think that sometimes goes for lawmakers, too. I mean, let's be, let's be honest here. The room was spellbound because her story is so personal it's so powerful and it is it, there's there's a good ending in all of this but she and her family have been through some really tough times and some really tough challenges and for her to present that really puts a human face on an issue that we're going to hear more about this legislative session and, and really courageously puts a human face on it. i mean that that's a gutsy thing to talk about and to present and to open yourself up uh, in, in legislative committees to, to talk about. So hats off to her, and you have to read her voices piece. It is really powerful stuff. Yeah, I, I just came from her presentation about three hours ago. I caught it this morning, and I can only think of in 10 years of covering the legislature every day, maybe one or two other testimonies or presentations that affected me and affected everyone the same way. Um, but she's taking this on, and, and she's made it her cause, and she has a platform as the Idaho Teacher of the Year. She's working with Superintendent Ibarra and other legislators. Superintendent Ibarra has elevated the conversation uh, about bullying and about uh, social-emotional issues that students face. But but Stacey Lawler, as Teacher of the Year, is making it her priority. She's having this conversation, and she has a real opportunity um, to change a lot of lives and, and educate a lot of people yeah. uh, about this. I learned something. 
But what you want to do is go to the homepage, idahoednews.org. Near the very top of the page, uh, we have some headlines and some bars running. Uh, but you want to click on the Voices tab. And then you want to click on Community Voices. And as of right now, when we record the podcast, it's right at the top. But the headline is, Don't Rely on Luck to Address Teens' Challenges. And it's by Teacher of the Year, Stacy Lawler. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not kidding. We're not just saying this. Uh, it, it is worth your time to stop and, and read that piece today and follow her on her journey. Um, it's one of the task force recommendations to address students' mental health issues and social-emotional learning. She's taking it on. The governor's taking it on. Superintendent Ibarra's taking it on. But Stacy Lawler is in a position to lead here. And, and she has a, and a story personal. worth sharing. It's personal for her. It's a cause for her. And Again, hats off to her for for having the, the courage to share that story. Yep, absolutely. I think that's a great way uh, to end. That's the way that I ended the week, and that's the message I want to leave, leave people with. Uh, but a busy week. I know the podcasts are running long, but but thanks for bearing with us. But the us. week feels like it's running yeah, long. Yeah, it, it does for <laughs> sure. But thanks for bearing with us. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this ever-complicated issue of education policy and education politics. Kevin and I will both be back at the State House all next week and throughout the remainder of the session, which I think is scheduled to run into November or something like that. Uh, You can catch us on Idaho Reports this weekend. I hope you have a great weekend and a lot of fun. We'll be back next week chasing all the news at the Statehouse. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.